Welcome to the podcast. I'm pleased today to have Matty Friedman on the show. Matty is an award-winning author and a reporter and editor. He's worked in many countries, including Lebanon, Morocco. He's worked in Egypt, in, in Russia, and he's also worked in Washington, D.C. And I wanted to have him on the show because of two articles he's written uh, about the way the press covers uh, Israel and the Arab-Israeli conflict. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So the two articles I'm referring to, one appeared in The Atlantic magazine and the other uh, in Tablet magazine. And the central claim you put forward in, in the two articles, though you cover different aspects, is that the media gets Israel wrong. Just flesh out what you see is going wrong here. Sure. I was a correspondent for the Associated Press, which is one of the world's biggest news organizations. Um, between the summer of 2006 and the very end of 2011, so that's about five and a half years. And during my time there, I came to realize that the, the way that this country is covered represents a pretty serious malfunction in, in the practice of journalism. And there are two main aspects of the malfunction. One is the scope, and the other is the content. So the, the scope of coverage of, of Israel is really beyond proportion and, um, to any other news story on earth. And I'll, I'll give you an example. When I started working at the AP in 2006, there were more than 40 full-time news staffers working in the bureau covering Israelis and Palestinians. Um, the, the country of Israel <coughs> is worth, worth pointing out. The, the population is under 8 million. So the AP had more people, far more people covering Israel than it had covering China with 1.3 billion people or India or all of the countries of sub-Saharan Africa, more than 50 countries, or all of the countries where the Arab Spring eventually erupted combined. So the story was covered more than any other international story on Earth. And that has given this place an importance in the, in the mind of, of the world that, uh, that really has very little connection to its actual geopolitical importance. And it makes events here seem very important. It kind of inflates things beyond... Um, beyond what, what they actually are. So that's one aspect of the malfunction, the scope. Uh, inside the malfunction of scope is a malfunction of content. And this one is a bit more complicated to, to see or, uh, or explain, but essentially the press corps, the very large press corps operating here, has, generally speaking, and I'm speaking in, in generalizations here, um, has adopted a political role uh, more than a journalistic one, and it's come to see its job here as um, kind of pulling for the side that the journalists like, and coverage is molded with that goal in mind rather than with the goal of explaining a complicated situation to, to people abroad. And that explains um, the very strange decisions that you'll encounter in, in bureaus of the various news organizations working here, some of which I um, I detail in my articles, in which I'm happy to uh, expand on if you'd like. Yeah, so tell us a bit about what you re describe as the story, and I put that in quotes as coming out, and the, sort of the, the surprising uniformity of coverage and what you see uh, behind that. Right. The, uh, one of the striking things for people following news coverage out of this place is that if you look at the stories coming out of the big news organizations on a given day, they are likely to be more or less the same story even though they're written by different people and edited by different people in different organizations, um, they tend to write the same thing. And that's because the press corps is a 
a group of people who tend to know each other and they keep a very close eye on what their colleagues are doing and they um, meet after work for, for drinks and they're um, very conscious of the competition and very hesitant to break ranks. Ideological uniformity in this story is very, very important, which is why you won't see very much news reporting that is really surprising. You won't see stories come out of left field. People have generally agreed on what the story is and they don't stray from it. Uh, the story is, simply put, that the, uh, this is the, the most important conflict on Earth, or very close, that the root cause of the conflict is the occupation of the West Bank, and that um, should Israel, which is the stronger side, decide to reverse the occupation, the conflict would be solved. So the story ends up being a story of, strong, of, the, of the strong, in this case, um, the Israelis, uh, and the weak, in this case, the, the Palestinians, one strong party and one victim. And that's why when uh, you see Israel covered, it's generally um, you know, as, as a military power. And when you see Palestinians covered, it's generally as a passive victim. And a great example of that was Gaza last summer, where an objective observer of, of events in Gaza would have concluded that there was a war in Gaza between two uh, military forces, uh, more than 4,000 rockets and mortars were launched from Gaza. More than 60 Israeli soldiers were killed in fighting. Um, but you didn't see that in news copy. What you saw were Israeli tanks and Palestinian civilian casualties. That, that was the story that was covered. And that's because that is the Israel story in, in a nutshell. It's a story about strong and, and weak and about the abuse of power. So I was struck, I think it's in the Atlantic article, uh, you illustrate it with an, a photograph of a, a, a scene from Al-Quds University. Could you describe it and what you take that signifying? The, the picture that I used in the Atlantic, I think, is a very striking and um, easily understood example of the kind of decisions that are made by, by reporters here. The, the rally that appears in the photograph took place in 2013, and it was held by the student faction affiliated with Islamic Jihad, which is, a, as its name would suggest, an Islamic Jihadi group. Um, the, the picture shows two rows of black-masked men with black flags um, facing a crowd. You don't see the crowd in, in the photograph. The crowd numbered several hundred students. And the, the men with black masks are um, extending their hands in what would appear to a Western observer uh, pretty clearly to be a Nazi salute. It's kind of a straight-armed uh, salute. Other photographs from the same event show that several of the uh, participants in, in the crowd returned the salute. Now, that photograph was taken um, on campus and um, provided to uh, reporters. The, the editors at the, at the AP Bureau in Jerusalem had the photograph the next day before they had been published. Uh, subsequently, all of the news organizations here saw the photographs because they were eventually published by Israeli media. And the striking thing about the story was that no one would touch it. So it wasn't that one news organization uh, decided that this wasn't newsworthy or, were, or that their reporters were too busy that day across the board. All of the many uh, important Western news organizations that have representatives in Jerusalem ignored this story. Now, this is a mainstream Palestinian university. It was headed at the time by a very prominent Palestinian moderate, Farina Saban. Um, this is a university with um, 
joint programs with American colleges like Bard and Brandeis at the time. And so this is a story with an American angle, and it's a very interesting story. And if you look into it, you find that there have been several rallies of this kind. In fact, there are several rallies of this kind every year. And the student government at Al-Quds University is run by Hamas. And this is all happening very much in the heart of Jerusalem. And it's an interesting story if you're trying to figure out what makes this conflict tick and what is acceptable opinion and behavior on the Palestinian side of things. And indirectly, it also helps you understand why Israelis think the way they do. One of the questions that is always asked is why is why are Israelis so hesitant to make a political concession to the Palestinians? Why are Israelis unwilling to pull the military out of the West Bank and East Jerusalem? And if you see pictures like this, it might help you understand that. Um, that is precisely the reason that they can't be published. It complicates the story. It complicates the story of Israelis being strong and increasingly irrational victimizers and Palestinians being essentially passive victims with a reasonable goal, namely the creation of a small democratic state alongside Israel. I was struck. I think it's a story that you yourself wrote or had pitched to an editor that was killed, and it, it touched another untouchable subject, which was the the... I think the relationship uh, and the corruption within the Palestinian self-governing authority, is that, am I getting that right? Yes, that happened on, on more than one occasion. One of the things that um, you're not supposed to, to touch is is that the, the bureaus here are, generally speaking, and there are exceptions, but as a general rule, it's, it's true, they're uninterested in coverage that presents the Palestinians as agents of their own state. The Palestinians are supposed to appear in the story as victims of Israel. So if you delve too deeply into corruption, it ends up scrambling the story. Uh, the reporters see themselves very much as part of the international community here, um, which is a social world that's made up of NGO activists and UN employees, and it's a very big part of the of the scene here. And of course, there are hundreds of millions of dollars in international money um, that are in, in play here, and if you uh, get close to the uh, to the action, you realize that a lot of that money is um, being wasted. A lot of that money is going missing, and reporters do not um, look into that too, too deeply. Um, I'd like to I'd like to see an investigation of agencies of um, of the United Nations and, you know, where exactly the money is going when they, uh, you know, pour money into this conflict, where exactly does it end up? But that's not the kind of thing that you ever see covered in, in part because the uh, international organizations like the United Nations are not seen as targets for coverage. You'll never see critical coverage of them. They are rather sources for the reporters. So you'll see UN officials or Human Rights Watch officials or Amnesty International officials quoted as sources but you will never see them covered as, as targets for journalism. And that's part of the kind of warped picture that's being exported from here by journalists. You mentioned that there are certain NGOs that are not seen as helpful, and so they are in some way um, written out of the story. The NGOs that are acceptable are the ones that I, that I mentioned. Um, those are uh, people who tend to be the reporter's friends. Um, and they are seen as uh, sources of news. So if Human Rights Watch puts out a report, uh, that is news. So the report is cited, and it could be the basis for, for a news story because it matches the story that the reporters are interested in telling. 
Um, you have players on the other side of the political spectrum, and one that I mentioned in, in my second story, the one in the Atlantic, is NGO Monitor, which is kind of a, an anti-NGO NGO <laughs> on the Israeli side. Um, so also very much a, a political um, uh, player with, with an agenda, um, kind of a pro-Israel uh, agenda. Um, that NGO is radioactive. So you're not allowed to, to, to touch it. Um, in my time at the AP Bureau, for, for a pretty significant segment of, of time, there was an explicit ban on quoting them um, so that we would not be able to uh, quote a Human Rights Watch report, for example, and then balance it with a quote from NGO Monitor. So, of course, an NGO like NGO Monitor is a political player, but um, it is, should be clear to anyone that Human Rights Watch is also a political player and that Amnesty International is a political player. And these groups kind of have this um, aura of, kind of, of a kind of um, uh, infallibility. And they're not seen as political players. They're seen as kind of sources of, of infallible truth. Uh, while NGOs on the other side are seen as kind of, you know, partisan hacks that are not that are not to be touched, and I think that needs to be unpacked a bit, uh, because it's certainly one of the dynamics that are uh, that are skewing the coverage. One of the stories you tell I found completely startling and terrifying because I, I can't imagine what it would have been like. I think there was a case of uh, Hamas operatives uh, invading the news. Bureau, uh, I think it was in Gaza City at some point, and that that itself was not considered news. That's right. I mean, one of the questions that um, people covering uh, or people following coverage of Gaza last summer um, were, were asking or should be asking is where were the pictures of Hamas? So there was fighting going on in Gaza. We learned that Hamas had constructed this very impressive military infrastructure underneath. Um, civilian landscape in Gaza, tunnels and weapons, stores of various kinds and civilian buildings and schools, etc. And there was combat going on in Gaza, but the pictures coming out in, of Gaza showed Israeli soldiers and Israeli tanks, and it showed Palestinian civilians, with the missing link in the whole picture being the military force in Gaza, which is Hamas. So the question is, where were those pictures? Were the Hamas guys invisible? Um, and if not, why were Western reporters not taking pictures of them and making them characters in, in the story? So the answer to that question is complicated. One of the reasons is that Hamas fighters don't play into the story that most Western reporters are there to tell, which is a story of uh, strong Israelis and weak Palestinians. So if you have a Palestinian fighting force, that complicates the story. and It makes Israeli actions seem kind of justified. So they're best left out. That's part of the dynamic. Um, but another part of the dynamic, a significant part, is intimidation by Hamas. Uh, Hamas doesn't want you to take pictures of their fighters, and they will go to um, significant lengths to make sure that you don't uh, have that opportunity. And um, what happened in, in the Bureau, the AP Bureau in Gaza City this summer, two instances that I reported in the story in the Atlantic, one was that Hamas squad launched a rocket right outside the AP Bureau, and it was uh, visible to the entire staff at the Bureau, and the AP did not report it, that, which is you know, quite an interesting detail. If you, fall, if you look at the coverage coming out of Gavi, you'll see that this stuff generally isn't 
report, he didn't see a lot of footage of Hamas crews launching rockets from uh, from residential areas. And when we did see footage like that, it came from peripheral news organizations. An Indian crew had footage like that, and it made a lot of waves. Big organizations with permanent representatives in Gaza, which are very well connected with um, the Gaza population and with Hamas, did not have those pictures. The AP did not have those pictures. Reuters did not have those pictures. The BBC didn't. The New York Times didn't. It was peripheral crews that weren't heavily invested in the story, which is quite telling. Um, a second instance that I uh, reported in the Atlantic, and this is the one that you mentioned, was the um, arrival during the fighting of armed Hamas men in the AP Bureau to threaten the staff over a photograph that had been taken by one of the AP photographers. And not uh, not only um, did this happen, which is, of course, you know, important to, to, to those of us trying to understand why the picture coming out of Gaza was so skewed, the AP decided not to report it. So it's not just that consumers of news are being given a picture that is um, lacking. It's that the reporters are failing to inform readers that they're operating under these restrictions. So you could publish a story, and if you feel that your staff is in danger, at the bottom of the story, you write a note saying, this story was published under Hamas uh, restrictions on journalists, which prevent us from showing A, B, C. But the AP, like its sister organizations, have not been honest enough to do that. And that, in my opinion, is a huge ethical failing. I wanted to probe further. So you, you characterize the stories that come out as having a certain uniformity, but in your articles, you describe what you think are other ways to understand what's going on. And one in particular uh, I thought was vivid. You describe Israel as a sort of village on the slope of a volcano. What do you see as the story that that, uh, uh, that, that sort of signifies? If you look at the story coming out of the Middle East and mainstream news organizations over the past 20 years, you will conclude that the biggest story in the Middle East is the conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. And as I mentioned, that the root cause of that conflict is the occupation and where the occupation somehow solved the conflict would be over. The Mideast press corps for decades has been overwhelmingly concentrated in in Israel and the Mideast conflict, absurdly, it would seem to an intelligent observer now, the Mideast conflict came to mean the conflict between uh, Jews and Arabs on a piece of land that is equivalent to 0.2% the size of the Arab world. Um, if we take this story and we apply it to events, the question is, does this story help us understand what's going on? Because that's really the question here. It's not, are journalists being fair to Israel or unfair to Israel? Are they writing nice things uh, about the Israeli government or not? It is certainly not journalists' job to write nice things about the Israeli government. The question is, are they adequately explaining events to consumers of news? Or are consumers of news constantly being blindsided by events? So if we take this story and we apply it to events, let's see if it explains anything. Does it explain why the peace process collapsed in the 90s? Does it explain why the most left-wing government Israel had ever elected um, was on the receiving end of the worst wave of terrorism that Israel had ever experienced? Does it explain why um, Hamas took over Gaza after the Israelis pulled out in 2005? Does it explain why Hamas won the last Palestinian election in 2006? Does it explain why Hezbollah took over South Lebanon when Israel pulled out in 2000? Does it explain what uh, is happening right now in Yemen or Libya or Egypt or Iraq or Syria? Does it explain what happened at the World Trade Center? 
does it explain what happened in London? Does it explain what just happened in Paris? And the answer is no, it doesn't explain anything. The story that has been exported from the Middle East uh, by reporters over the past 20 years does not help us explain those things. But if we understand, as I think more and more people are understanding right now, that the story in this part of the world over the past 20 years has been the rise of radical Islam, and that all players in the region are reacting in some way to that, if we understand that that is the story, do we understand all of the examples that I just gave? And the answer is yes. If we understand that that, that is the story, then things kind of become clear and people wouldn't be so surprised by events. They wouldn't be blindsided by events. And that is a sure sign that reporters have gotten the story wrong. Well, Maddie, it's been great talking to you. I encourage everyone listening to find your articles. We'll link to them in the show notes, too. I just wanted to see if there are any other thoughts you would you would share with us or advice you'd give to readers trying to understand uh, the conflict in the region. I would say in a broad sense that it's important to remember that um, reporters are, are human and that the press is not infallible and that um, the press itself is something that's worth covering. I mean, most aspects of society in a democracy are covered. The government is covered, of course, and most things are covered, but the press isn't. And the press does not like to cover itself, and it does not like to be covered by others, and it does not like the suggestion that they make mistakes and are subject to social pressures or political pressures, um, and they do not, uh, as a rule, appreciate being um, asked to um, be transparent in the way that reporters demand of government, for example, uh, to be transparent. So it's very important to be a critical consumer of of news coverage. It's important to find a few uh, sources of news that, that you trust. I think it's important to read books more than daily news coverage of, of international stories. I, I certainly try to read more books about this place than I do news articles, which tend to be unhelpful in kind of understanding the, the sweep of, of events. And... Uh, yeah, it's important to keep a critical head on your shoulders. Well, Maddie Friedman, thank you for joining us today. Where can people find out more about your work? We can certainly check my website, which is just my name, www.mattyfriedman.com. Um, if you Google my name, you'll find various essays that I've written recently. I have a book that came out in 2012, which is a nonfiction mystery about the most important copy of the Bible in Hebrew called the Aleppo Codex. And finished working on another book about an Israeli military outpost in Lebanon in the 1990s, and that should be out in about a year's time. Great. Thanks for coming on. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me on.